Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My fantastic guest today is Alex Krieger, Professor in Practice of Urban Design at the world-famous Harvard University Graduate School of Design the alma mater of so many leading urbanists that work in planning, urban design, architecture across the world, an author of a brilliant new book, I think, called City on a Hill, Urban Idealism in America from the Puritans to the Present, which we explore in this fascinating interview. I'm delighted to meet you, Alex. And uh, where where are you speaking to us from at the moment? At the moment, I'm in Boston, which is uh, where we live. And in my, uh, in, in, outside of my living room, so that I'm not interrupting with what my wife is doing. Ah, oh, very good. <laughs> and I'm speaking to you from Sydney. I, I, I went to Boston a few years ago and I was very impressed with it, although it's really hot. And for somebody from Sydney to say that, I think it's quite interesting. It was like an urban oh, that, heat. It was, it was very, an unusual, unusual moment. Then. It was, yeah, not, it was very humid. It, it was, uh, um, yeah. but I love Boston, and I uh, we're going to talk about American cities uh, a lot, but also, but also, I'm going to talk about your book because uh, I think your book, City on a Hill: Urban Idealism in America from the Puritans to the Present, is a brilliant book. And a great, uh, not just an introduction to people who don't know about cities, although it could be used like that. It's a really very informed, very deep, mm. feels like a, a, a lot of, you know, years went into it. It's a really, and also, by the way, not unimportantly, beautiful to look at, and it's well written. So uh, I completely, straightforwardly, well, I'm a fan. I'm starting to blush. No, 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 no. I'm, 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 well, although well. the Welsh are known for flattery, I must, I must tell you. The, uh, <laughs> but actually, this is a very, this is a very honest statement. It's really good, and I, I've reminded myself because I bought it when it came out, um, and I reminded myself over the last far, last few days of things I'd like to talk about. But I think I'd like to start with the idea, which is a really interesting idea that. Of the many things that build cities, ideas and visions can build cities. And we, we sort of always think of the kind of commercial side or we think of the bricks and mortar. We think of capital. You know, we think of governments doing stuff. But actually, the book is a lot about the ideas that people have had uh, about cities and how that's led to something. So let's talk a yeah. bit about that. You know, uh, is that, have, have I got it right, by the way? Is that, is that a, a good overview? Well, or, I mean- on a day to day, on a day on a day to day basis, of course, you know, commerce and and uh, mayors and council members and so forth sort of make decisions and build things and demolish them and so forth. So on a daily basis, you can say no, it's kind of more pragmatic. But but you are right, or at least I, I think that that uh, this is something I believe that actually what motivates people, the kind of cultural motivations, ultimately creates the kind of cities that uh, we either sort of enjoy or 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 or, you know, kind of uh, feel sort of sadly about. Now, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of launch into the book just like that, but, uh, you know, the book is based upon, the book is, took about 30 years to write, I mean, in a way, uh, only because it sort of emerges a class first, the idea of a class that tries to describe uh, the kind of intellectual, cultural, philosophical underpinnings of what you see as you drive down the street or fly over uh, portions of America. 
And so, uh, at least in terms of the United States, which is sort of based upon a certain ideal, meaning we're going to start over. It's a new world. We're going to start over. We're going to somehow overcome whatever uh, trepidations we've had about the old world. Uh, and here's our chance. Finally, here's our chance to do it better. And so the sense of kind of utopianism, uh, I think, has pervaded many, many uh, sort of decisions with regard to the way, the way America's sort of imagined they would wish to be settled. Now, other things come into play, obviously, but nonetheless, uh, there's still a sense that, oh, you know, uh, in America, we can overcome the problems of authoritarianism or, you know, being kind of, you know, sort of led by kings and queens and so forth. In America, we can overcome, and this is particularly important, we can overcome the difficulties of the Industrial Revolution actually retreating from the city at the moment at which it seemed to be so harsh and so unfriendly and so inundated with people and so polluted and so diseased and so forth. And that, in a way, led to suburbanization, which was at least initially thought to be an antidote to the dirty industrial city. Right. So, I mean, I think the book really sets out really well that there's been a kind of yin and yang going on in the American discussion between urbanism and anti-urbanism, between nature and the built environment and then there's the kind of city in in in, in nature and then the nature in city and, and and but there's a kind of yin and yang being going on and the the other thing that you point to apart from the idealism which i think is makes you america unique you know people can laugh at this idea outside america of the american dream but it actually has its roots in exactly what you're talking about which is the idea that humanity can begin again and that the uh, and that was huge in the literature you know uh, one of my favorite poets john Donne, uh, you know, in one of his lewd uh, poems before going to bed, looks to a, 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 somebody who I must confess must be naked in the in the poem and says, "Oh my America, oh my newfound land," and it's the, the idea that you could begin again in America. And then the second thing I think is your, your other point, which is great. I love this thing about uh, America was built on arrivals, so that in a sense there's a process of continuous settlement been going on. Uh, of, you know, in the cities, out the cities movement. So you've got these forces that are kind of primordial in, in, in America that I, that I think other places don't have. Well, perhaps not as much, or perhaps not as, not as sort of consistently, yeah. But let me say this, and I think the book tries to get at this as well, there's a downside to this, we can begin again. Right. Because actually, if you want to be quite critical of American urbanization, you can say, you know, we've, we've tried to begin again. You know, I make the point, I think, literally, uh, we don't want to improve Detroit. We want to replace Detroit. Right. We want to move somewhere else. Right. And so the notion of American progress, which is slightly different than yeah. we can begin again, but related is, OK, let's not worry about what happens to Detroit. We're going to do a better version of it further west or, or whatever the case might be. Right? That's, all, that's really important because that, that explains quite a lot of the kind of movement of people. People, you know, not just within their city, but from from their city to and new starts physically somewhere else. I mean, the the whole Sunbelt explosion in the fifties and sixties exactly. is partly uh, about that. But we're running ahead of ourselves, and it's my fault. Right. So so let's 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 go back. So we've heard a bit about. Um, it does feel deep. I also want to talk to you at the end, by the way. I mustn't forget. You say very little. You say commendably little about Jane Jacobs. I I I just I just want to, I've noticed it. Like, and you say. Almost as little about Robert Robert Moses, but but you're quite impressed with Robert Moses in a way, as I am, and I think he's although you know he's denounced as the kind of fascist genius of the of the early twentieth century. He had something that boy did. He, uh, there's something about his 
creative kind of way of doing things, but he's also a monster, you know. So, but anyway, we, let's not pause there because I just think it's a. I just want to say to you genuinely, on a book of urbanism and of America, to say so little about Jacobs is huge, and I want to. I want to come back to why. Um, and I, well, I, I'm going to. I'm going to do it now because I'm sorry because I'm too excited by it. But but basically, you you correctly I think point out that she's quite simplistic about. Um, Greenwich Village, and that the, the the kind of marketing of let's all do Greenwich Village has not been necessarily a very wise, very wise thing. Well, first of all, I don't think anyone else needs to say anything more about <laughs> Jane Jacobs. It's all been said, uh, so Fair <laughs> I can almost stop there. But yes, I mean, I, well, of course, her book, and of course, uh, her career subsequently was very instrumental, especially. Uh, as it related to the middle of the 20th century. When we, uh, by, by the way, when we went through one of those, we can begin again through our urban renewal programs. Right. What we need to do is demolish what's there and and uh, rebuild it. Yep. So that was a very tra traumatic, you know, unlike the, you might say, the more benign version of moving away into, and creating a kind of suburban yep. ideal. Yep. Uh, during the, but as a consequence of so many people moving out, uh, what was left was was assumed to be useless or slummed or yeah. uh, you know, was, no was, longer necessary. And that was wrong. And so a yeah. substantial amount of a demolition, displacement, and especially towards you know minorities and so uh, poor. And so her voice then seemed to be very unique and very important. Hey, you guys, uh, you're not doing this correctly. But ultimately, and I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure that uh, in, uh, that people ever got to the end of the book. Yes, good point, Ashley. They're not gonna, yeah. because at course the last couple of chapters, she begins to actually uh, quote very extensively a Weaver, a scientist who talked about the complexity of modern life, right, and the way that you address complex problems as opposed to simplistic problems of a variable or two, and this is where. It, but this is page four hundred forty-five, and how many of us have gotten that far? Uh, and so I think the, the her point, as brilliant and, and timely as it was, has tended to remain. But indeed, you know, Shanghai or Tokyo, much less Boston, right, is not about uh, the repeating of Greenwich villages. And so I think that she's been, not she, but she's in a way been misinterpreted, actually, by all of her followers, right? Yeah. And I think your point is right. She was a critique. Uh, there was, it, rather than a substantive philosophy, there was, there was a critique, which was correct at the time. And I think that whole thing about... And the substantive idea of mixed use and the ballet of the streets and all that stuff is absolutely right. Um, and, but the oversimplification leads to, you know, cookie-cutting kind of stuff. But also, um, we, gentrification has come out of it as well, is, is, or at least it contributed to it, I think. But that's not... Again, not her fault, I think. One more issue, uh, which I actually like to quote. Uh, I think her, for me, the most important quote: <laughs> "A store is also a storekeeper." Yes. And that, and so the other revolution that she initiated, which we're still very much involved with, uh, for much for better, and in some cases for worse, is of course uh, uh, far less top-down planning. Uh, trying to kind of uh, involve citizenry in decision-making. Uh, in the U.S., this has become almost a, I would say, almost a, a, a problem, and it's right. extreme yeah, because right, right. Uh, yeah. it's... A, and back to Moses for a second. In other words, 
his great strength was he was an implementer. He was yeah, doing yeah, stuff. Yeah. His reputation has emerged a little bit in recent years, uh, less as a monster than, gosh, we could use a couple of implementers <laughs> yes. because somehow yes. we can't get things done. I think this yes. is right. You know, the, the, um, uh, I think that Moses has been simplified. Ca Caro is, a, is brilliant, but I don't know he's in, got entirely right about this guy because he's picked on some really terrible things that, that he did and believed and, and he was as racist as anybody was in that era and all that stuff right but yeah. he had ideas that nobody else had he had methods of doing stuff in the city he had special purpose vehicles uh, and he did these part he did things that people you could, if you add them up they're extraordinary what he did so yeah. I, I'm kind of I'm into the kind of yin and yang between Jacobs and Moses as where the discussion should be as it were you know that's my those two are necessary that's, figures that's Actually, in the class, in the class that I taught for many years, and uh, out of which has come this book, actually, uh, we would uh, during one session we would uh, have one of my teaching fellows uh, be Jane Jacobs, and I would be Robert Moses, and we'd have a debate. Great, that's uh, exactly what we do. Of course, in terms of the audience, generally Jane Jacobs would win, but uh, 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 you know, I got a couple of kicks in there because really uh, his limit. By the way, you keep saying he had many ideas. He had sort of administrative ideas. Yes, that's or, what I meant. Yeah. Uh, Good governance again, ideas. ideas. Yeah, yeah. They were not necessarily intellectual no, ideas. No, no. His limitation, his principal limitation was he, as many around that time, thought the car indeed was the future of mobility, yeah, yeah. nothing else. And that, see, we now need a Moses for transit, at least in the American side. I get that. I think it's Absolutely. a great, great way of putting it. I think. He, he was also progressive in, in officially, you know, he, he was from that kind of modernist progressive era. It's wrong to think of him as just a kind of reactionary. It's, it's much more complicated. No, no, actually, he, at the time, up until the 60s, you know, he had a long run. At the time, he was perceived as the person who is modernizing, you know, the world's most important city, the capital capitalism and so forth. He was he was bringing it into the modern age. And, that, and he actually spent a fair amount of time uh, f f fueling that idea. <laughs> so, so regular listeners to this podcast will know that I set off with great intentions of doing it all properly, and then I jump to what I'm what I'm interested in. But <laughs> that's I, no, that's good. But I want to go back because we we have to start not just at the beginning of your book, but at the, in a sense at the beginning of American thinking about these things. So, you, you've got a great chapter on Jefferson uh, at the beginning. It seems to me. Could you say a bit about Jefferson and the, what do you think is the remaining influence or importance of, of that, of the Jeffersonian kind of Republic in terms of this city <laughs> well, discussion? By the way, today in the U S we can only talk about Jefferson as a slave. I, I understand and, that, and, you know, you know, he might've done a few other things is the only thing I put out there as a proposition. And one of them is, is have ideas about the American future. So, uh, well, say a bit yes. about him. Well, look, he, he was the principal progenitor of the notion of a, an agrarian republic and the idea that land ownership would lead to persons' wealth and happiness, as the Declaration of Independence said, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? By the way, most, uh, most state uh, uh, yeah. constitutions say life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Right. So, so his notion, it now seems kind of uh, also simple minded, of course. Uh, and yet the notion that if we can distribute the kind of wealth of the new world uh, into kind of 160 acre parcels of land uh, and make them available to all, uh, well, life, liberty, and perhaps some happiness might construe. And, and indeed, if you fly over much of America, forget the East Coast and the West Coast, 
It is gridded out into farm-like plots of land, quarter mile square, divided into four, into kind of what it was called quarter sections, which are 160 acres of a mile square. Uh, and uh, although the actual uh, ability to distribute this land to pretty much uh, anyone was really a, a mid 19th century yes, policy yes. fascinated, uh, uh, the idea that land, that land ownership, that owning a piece of America is basically the uh, the the idea of the American dream. The American dream, you know, uh, many people think of it as sort of socially motivated and so forth, civically motivated. No, no, it's a kind of a personal ability to take advantage of the resources available to you as a consequence of land ownership. Now, bring that forward. So, you know, throughout the 19th century, that was pretty good, <laughs> except the Industrial Revolution somehow yeah, yeah, right. changed everything. Uh, and you, and you might say, I think as I say, and, and perhaps uh, Jeffersonian scholars would be very mad at me, he could be thought about as a progenitor of the suburb. I think so. Not intentionally, obviously, but it's okay. Now we're, now we're happy with an eighth of an acre rather than 160 acres, which are supposed to be our largesse, right? So the translation of the Jeffersonian notion is still very much part of the DNA of Americans. The, the, the idea about... Yeah. You know, not being quite so convinced that uh, urbanism is is a kind of a good way to exist. We'd like to be separated a bit from it. Uh, uh, thinking about nature, even as we as we despoil it, but yeah. somehow having a very romantic idea of of nature, the wilderness, and so forth. So, an awful lot of Jeffersonian thought has been sort of translated into. Uh, certain sentimental notions about what a true American might be and where he might he or she might live. Right. See, uh, the, uh, I, I think that's right. You know, and I was going to say to you, one of the things I think is really good about the book is that it doesn't sneer about suburbia, by the way, which is really important <laughs> because it clouds our thinking that we, you, you know, that we, you know, and I, it's funny, I, I've changed my mind about this. You know, I grew up in a, a kind of uh, um, a public housing version of a, of a low density s suburb. And so I was, I, I think, congenitally against it because when I went to a city, I thought, wow, there's so many more things I can do, you know, as an 18 year old, 19 year old. And I completely understand that. But what I didn't understand, what, what I didn't understand was the, the sense of, um, you know, freedom, the sense of engagement with, with some kind of nature, the fact that there were there was pretty good walkable, talkable communities kind of going on and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I was going to say to you about the suburb, I want, I want to talk about this because uh, you say what you, you like, but I, I, there is a kind of, for me, an intellectual uh, sort of darkness descends whenever people think about the suburb. And Australia is full of them. Uh, but we don't love them. You know, the intellectual discussion does not love them, but people kind of opt for, for them annoy, and annoy us, you know, by opting for this thing. And I, I think it's got a number of things. One is affordability of uh, housing ownership uh, at its core. It is related to the, um, which I think the Jeffersonian thing is related to the Englishman's home as his castle kind of... Uh, yes, absolutely. It's a politics. It's, a, it's an independence from, yes. arbit from arbitrary government. You know, it's a kind of... This, this, there is an ideal behind it, uh, which is a politics, which is quite real. Absolutely. And uh, so, uh, certainly Jefferson was not a kind of big government, a fan of big government. That was some of the other kind of uh, yes. signers of our uh, declaration and so forth. Not he. But there's one more aspect to this. There's one more, I don't know, I, you could still call it an ideal, I think. And that is the notion of a middle position, yes. a middle ground. Yes. So it's 
the city becomes uh, the city also comes with certain amounts of constraints on you as an individual. And of course, the wilderness is full of bears and, and you know, other kind of creatures. But the notion of occupying a place midway between the extremes of sort of civilization and sort of primitivism, which actually was an enlightenment notion uh, uh, coming from kind of from really from France during the 18th century. So the suburb becomes this kind of an actualization of what was then called sort of the ethic of the middle link. In other words, uh, societies, uh, as they advance and become more sophisticated, they also become kind of corrupt. Uh, uh, the, the Native American, well, that was just too primitive, but somehow innocent. So if we can combine sophistication and innocence, uh, that's where the kind of the best human being uh, might, might exist. And the suburb is actually a physical manifestation of that idea, except once it becomes universalized and therefore obliterates both city and, and country, right? But for a long while, yeah. it was a pretty good model, right? And yes. I, I kind of, in my head, I've, uh, you know, I, I invented this phrase. I might have stolen it from a friend of mine who had a band called Superbia. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, I have this notion that the end game for all this is the kind of more sustainable suburb uh, rather than, you know, the dream of a, an entirely densified city or something. Or, you know, I, I like the idea of the middle ground, by the way, for for the middle classes, you know, as it were, which is to say, you know, you know what I mean? And I, I think there's something in the self-realisation uh, side of it, which people just don't, you know, the urbanists don't seem to get. Although every urbanist I know, you know, uh, spends... a quite a while in the inner city when they have children they move out to a, a suburb so but they don't like it very much anyway let's go back no no well yeah. oh go just, on well a couple more things yeah. if, if i may about this about the suburbs so uh no one likes it here either except the 60 percent of people yeah. who seem to be okay there yeah. now uh, 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 and by the way the most we're now in in the U.S. because there was a certain kind of kind of revision and a certain kind of a love affair emerging about density yeah, urbanism. Yeah, and and Australia as well. In the last last well, up think, until COVID, well, up until COVID for twenty five yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it'll be sustained despite uh, some reservation about COVID. But so, so now we're worried about affordability because, of course, you know, yeah. if we all move the cities, it can, the most affordable housing ever produced was during the mid for for the largest number of people was the kind of sub, the, the Levittown homes being built by the tens of thousands. Uh, that, it's, that's a kind of an irony, right? Because you think, oh my God, it can't be so. We can't replace it now. We can't do that now. We have to find some other for, ways to subsidize. All those subsidization took place to support the suburb, but we can't overlook the fact that uh, as we struggle for affordability now, that was that was the way in which housing and Jeffersonian, in a way, right, uh, sort of diminished, if you will, was a way in which the majority of the rising middle class could occupy uh, a certain amount of uh, affluence. I mean, yeah. d d uh, despite the fact that we know that there was kind of a, a racial underpinning to a lot of uh, suburban no, no, development, sure. it, it, it was actually a form of egalitarian kind of uh, development for the majority, uh, as it were. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series. I, 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 this, this is going to help us find our way to the, another bit I want to talk about in your book, which is this, the, the ideal of the small town. Because you and I, I think, might violently agree about this, which is that the... 
there is a there is a, the the problem we have with suburban development in Australia, by the way, is that it's all almost housing and just housing. You know, it's not really creating places and town centres and all that kind of stuff. So I can see a form of suburban development which is far better than the one we actually have, which is about like it's almost like Leon Creer's idea of the subs- you know the kind of replication of that you have town centre, town centre, town centre, and that around it you have your your residential development, but you have a mixed use core, and I think yeah. Yeah, and it's all walkable and all that. I think there is a version of that that I'd like to kind of push for, but but that's because it evokes the small town, which is let's go back to that now. That that is another big part of American the American urban thinking, the ideal of the small town. Say a bit more about that. Well, it's true. <laughs> and the suburb was was pitched all along, despite its many kind of liabilities, uh, as a version of a small town available to kind of all. So, again, that's part of the, the kind of the sentimentalization about the origins of, uh, of the New World. You know, you didn't move to the New World to move into cities. Well, actually, immigrants starting the Industrial Revolution, certainly did. But prior to that, yeah. small groups of people with a kind of a certain uniform mindset about what's important, whether it's kind of ecclesiastical or otherwise, uh, created a kind of a community, created their own kind of utopian uh, context or thought so. So so the idea of a town, uh, I think, is uh, key to the way in which the uh, the United States was settled pre-industrial revolution, uh, with and, and there were you know hundreds of communitarian uh, organizations, uh, towns formed, hundreds of uh, you know very kind of ecclesiastical-based uh, towns. Now, uh, they rarely lasted for very long. Indeed, after a while, the lure of the big city in terms of jobs, economy, progress, and education um, make them kind of uh, make them relatively obsolete, except in the mind frame of trying to think about, gosh, if I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere, wow, the town is where I want to be. And in most polls, even today, most polls, if they say, okay, what would you, if you could live anywhere, would you live in Manhattan? Would you live in a small town in New England? Would you live in a kind of a suburb, suburb or, you know, would you live out in the kind of you know, the Rocky Mountains? By a large percentage, people still say a town, right? So uh, it is very much ingrained in the DNA of Americans, even though they cannot articulate it. And the suburb occasionally served as a surrogate for this. In our country, the kind of the, the plea for making them more town-like uh, certainly emerges out of a group called the New Urbanists, yes, uh, yes. who began to say, and they're very Lear career focused, of course, yeah. uh, began to say, hey, all we got to do is, no one's going to move back to Manhattan. You know, 100 million people are not going to move in Manhattan. It's not clear whether cities of a 10 or 20 or 30 million people is actually the way to go. Let's urbanize our suburbs. Um, and and again, I don't want to kind of, uh, I, tend to, I tend to be very critical of the new urbanists because of their, largely because they've overpromised stuff. Right. Yeah, they yeah, haven't produced yeah. towns. They've still produced kind of nicer suburbs. But uh, I do think that as a consequence of the change in the workplace, we can work anywhere now, more or less. Yeah. Not everyone, yeah. but yeah. We can get stuff anywhere we need it to come to us. We don't have to go look for stuff. It'll come to us. Uh uh, I think that there's other sort of emerging uh, uh, kind of aspects of a modern culture that may 
enable us to live happily in smaller towns at some point with access to the rest of the world in ways, of course, that couldn't have been imagined, you know, 100 years ago or yeah. even 30 years ago. So the problem right. with that is that we're jumping to the end of our story, and I, but I want to go there now because the uh, because <laughs> I, one, I do, I do, it's funny, I do agree with the new urbanism thing. I, I kind of see its virtues, I do, uh, and I, but, and I, and we'd all like to live in some, some version of that. I agree with you. I don't think they've done very much uh, really on the ground and certainly not at scale. Um, I also think there's a sort of twee element to what, what's been done, but on, you know, there, there are worse things than twee probably. So, so I, I kind of, I'm okay with it and I boost it now and again, but I still think we need a vision for the future of the city, but let's go there now. So, so I was going to say to you at the end of this, that, that what I think is missing at the moment is, is, is an urban future idea. You know, the, uh, what we have is people doing stuff on the ground, um, in almost without an idea. Let me explain what I mean. The, uh, so, so I, because I come from a more of an economist kind of uh, background, I look at the the growth of uh, the inner city and the repopulating of it by middle class knowledge workers in the last forty years as to do with a kind of mode of production which is knowledge work, uh, and the paradox that actually, uh, in the first phase of it, even though technology allowed us to decentralise, we agglomerated again. Uh, and people with ideas mixed and made more value and all that kind of stuff. And that led to the overheating. But it was a huge force internationally. You see it in Melbourne and you see it in Sydney and you see it everywhere. Right. So industry ended. There was a gap. And then, you know, knowledge workers literally repopulated terraces that had been kind of working class industrial workers homes. You know, so all that happened. And then along comes COVID and then it radicalizes and dynamizes and speeds up stuff that could have been done before around decentralized knowledge working. But that is the way to think of it, that, that we're actually in an era of decentralized knowledge working where they don't need the agglomeration, or where they think they don't anyway, but they, they certainly are acting as though they don't need the agglomeration effect, physical agglomeration effect, of that we thought was core to the economy and therefore core to the city. So I, have a, I do have a worry that we are, and we saw New York lost half a million people or something like that in, in, in COVID. And there, there was a kind of out move. And I do see that that's holding quite, and hybrid working is, is kind of holding. Um, so I do think we are in an era where big economic forces are reshaping the city again. But I don't think we have an idea behind the ideal uh, I just think it's a kind of blank filled by um, economic activity and people doing individual things that end up as a trend. I, I don't quite see, are we validating the small town again? Are we leaving the city ne in a negatively? What are we doing? Well, uh, I don't know uh, either. However, uh, remember that the push back to the city, other than kind of urbanists' uh, fantasies about all of us being kind of lovers of cities, was because the thought was, in the new economy, you had to be where everyone else was. That's now proven to be less true, right? Not even before COVID, but certainly as a consequence of COVID. So, uh, so, and by the way, the city was about work. The city was about work. The city was about a career. Uh, you know, people didn't move uh, to 100,000 people didn't return to Boston because they loved Boston necessarily. They thought that they could find jobs with Google and, and Microsoft. And all. Uh, so but uh, as the fact, as the idea that we can both get stuff 
coming to us rather than going to get it, which invalidates you know shopping malls and so forth and, and street retail and so forth. And as of course we realize we could work at home at least part of the time, we need we need to kind of return to the idea of a city as a place to live rather than as a place for work. When you think about again in American kind of downtown, that downtown is where the jobs were. But who actually wants to be spend their life where your job is in a way, right? Yeah. Who wants to hang out, you know, have a have a go to a bar or whatever. So, uh, you know, hang out with your girlfriend uh, in the business district. Yeah. So uh, I think that the, the subtlety maybe is that we have to, as jobs are starting to kind of disperse again for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, including the digital ability to do so. We need to, and downtowns in particular, especially in American context, downtowns are struggling at the moment, right? Because we have not come back to them. I think we need to figure out a way to say cities are for living as opposed to cities are where the jobs are. And that might be something because again, I can't speak about Australia or, 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 or London, but uh, I, I do think that we've forgotten the idea that uh, great cities are where, uh, is where propinquity can happen or happens, not just in terms of your career, but in terms of your social life, in terms of uh, other things. Uh, the key, the, the, but the, what, what prevents it right now is that land values are such that industry can, or corporate America, right, can take it, can, uh, can bring more taxes to, right, uh, 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 the city than residential uses. So there's an imbalance between the value of land for residential uses and for commercial uses, and that's got to be figured out, right? We have to, we, in order to make cities more about living, we need to build much more housing. But at the moment, it's hard to build more housing because uh, it doesn't it doesn't pencil out, if you will, as opposed to a new lab. And that's, I think, yeah. uh, 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 something we haven't figured out yet, how to make cities more about life rather than work. Right. By the way, just to reassure you that, that, that all this stuff is going on in Australian cities, it's the same as in uh, every other city. And the uh, rents, commercial rents in Sydney fell almost as, as low as any in the world during uh, COVID, even though we had a good record of COVID outcomes, the lockdowns and all that kind of stuff changed habits and mass transit has not recovered either. Um, from that. So I think we are in a profound shift uh, of, yes. se of sentiment. And I think you're right. And people are calling it, I don't like it, but they're calling it the Central Experience District rather than Central Business District. But there's something there's something in it uh, as, a, as a discussion. And the last thing I want to say economically, I want to come back to your book. But the last bit I want to say was the, I've, there's this amazing graph by uh, that guy, um, Professor Otto in Boston University, in Harvard, who's an economist, who's brilliant. At, uh, and he, and he, he shows Dave Auter, who does robotics, which I think is fantastic, because it? it was a surname. But he, he, um, he basically shows that before COVID, there was a, that one thing to understand. It's almost, by the way, a political outcome. The, 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 the kind of Trumpian Brexit universe is also explained slightly. But the decline of jobs that don't require a degree, so the, the collapse in jobs that don't require a degree, it, you see it in the UK, you see it in America, you see it in, in Australia. And there's a, there's a geography to that, which is that the, the declining working class mining areas, industrial areas that I'm from, they stop producing these high paid working class 
jobs and at the same time their children were getting these skills in the knowledge economy and going to cities where there was a thick labour market. So if you got sacked by PwC, you could, you could work for KPMG. That doesn't happen in a single industry town where they all go down together. And it's, uh, it's very interesting, all that stuff. But, but that's now profoundly changing again. Now, I want to come back to a couple of things in the book. I love, by the way, some of the chapter titles are just, it's like commendable that they just tell you everything. The, I love uh, Chicago 1910, Logistics Utopia, because that's absolutely what it became. It was a kind of the centre of like meatpacking and distribution for all across America. So, so. It was the, the centre of the spider's web. It was a sp the spider at the centre of the spider's web. It could get stuff from everywhere, transform them, and send them back out. And that's, in a sense, is almost the definition of logistics, right? So sh for sure, yeah. It's a really good point, by the way. The, the logistics is reshaping our city again. So that the uh, so I, I'm, I can't know if I... I don't think I've made this up, but I, I call it over here the Amazonization of our, of our city with the, uh, you know, so I think p profound th things like from local distribution in nearby hoods, you know, through to uh, the edge of city warehouse distribution and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Amazon trebled its land holdings in cities across the globe during COVID, right? So something big is going on around logistics. Is that correct? Do you think that's correct? Absolutely. And, and again, that doesn't that does not necessarily uh, bode well for additional densification as opposed to a different way to decentralize than, of course, the suburbs were because the, sub, they were, the suburbs were not a, were not a replacement for the city. They were a place a little apart uh, 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 for the weekend and the evenings and so forth. So it was not a replacement idea. But I think the new versions of this would ha would be kind of replacements for the city, different ways in which cities could exist with their uh, mixed uses and so forth. But this is not necessarily at the 20 million uh, person scale. Now, that's we'll see. I mean, actually, the Chinese government tried to kind of incorporate this into their by calling it townization. Right. They were actually worried about too much concentration in their six or seven major cities. And they try and they, 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 they've kind of struggled to try to find a way to kind of create more cities of a certain scale rather than a few cities of a gigantic scale. I'm not sure that they've been successful, including because of COVID and other economic, economic issues. But yes, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, it's not just Amazon, but Amazon plays a major part of it. And interestingly enough, Amazon there was, was going to build its second major headquarters, national, international headquarters in Washington, D.C., or actually in the, in the burbs. Uh, has stopped it at the moment, has stopped it because uh, they may not, because there was also an attempt to kind of find another kind of great focus of concentration and they realized that maybe that's not the future. That's right? what it's, That might be a defining moment in this discussion in a way because the, it was Arlington, wasn't it? I think that they were... Arlington, yeah. yes, Virginia. And, and, and of course, Arlington's got a good reputation internationally for doing some good town planning recently and uh, thinking about, you know, walkability and all this kind of stuff. Transit, yeah. And Transit, same, yeah. yeah. And it was the big hope that the, the jobs would come from the kind of Amazon stuff, and that stopped a bit at the moment. But before we go, you've alluded to this. I, I, I'm trying to make the point in Australia when there's a kind of suburb versus the city kind of feel going on, like that the, the clue is in the title, sub of an herb, you know, the, uh, so I, I, you know, yeah, they're great to live in the suburbs, but you do quite like to have a city. That's what, you know, we're, we're there. 
in the suburbs because the city is is over there, you know. And I I think there's a sort of yes, it's it's very close. It hasn't been the case always as we sprawl, but the idea was that the city was close and nature was still close, and back to the ethic of the middle link. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I, I love Chicago, and I, I think that logistics idea explains hugely, yeah. you know, what what, what it is. Um, I also call it the Amazon of the, the first Amazon. Chicago as the oh, first yes. Amazon. Oh yes, that's a really good <laughs> yeah, way of thinking because, about it. Because you know, Sears, Sears Roebuck and yeah, all those yeah. kind of, you know, it, you had to be more patient, but you, you know, sent stuff to uh, Sears Roebuck, and it would be delivered to you by train, and a little bit slower than by. Two, two things, that, three things that unify the nation, the railways, the silver dollar and Sears Roebuck catalogues, you know, the, uh, yes. which uh, I found out the other day, you could actually buy a shed. Oh, no, you could buy a, 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 a house kit from Sears Roebuck back, you know, and put it together. People used to do this. Sure. Barns, too, not just, you know, houses. Yes. And in fact, that the, the kind of the primitive technology of, of having a house come to you in components ready to be assembled. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how to kind of perfect pre, you know, prefabrication, right, or uh, for housing and so forth. But yeah, they came close, but at the scale of a house, not the scale of an office building. Yeah, yeah. But we are thinking about modularity again. And there's something in this, I think, of, uh, of like, it's a cheaper construction, maybe. Now, back to ideas, right? So, so I, I, I want to talk about an idea, then I want to go to the the, the chapter on misguided renewal, which I think is uh, really quite important, and then I think the the the, the postscript, where are we we're heading, we'll we'll finish off with a bit of that. The idea, back to the ideas. Now, I'm 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 generally considered a nice person. I do like Richard Florida. I do like Richard Florida, right? But I do I've not I've never been a believer, and I I not really. I I I think it's like it's a bit like Jane Jacobs for me in a sense, which is. It's like nice in parts, you know. The uh, I like lots of Richard's ideas, and the writing's good. And but the central concept of the creative class was, I think, a mistake. And I think for the reason I sort of alluded to early on, which is there was far bigger forces going on than the sort of creative class. And actually, the creative class were a kind of subset of this broader repossession of the cities by the, these knowledge workers, which is a far bigger force. Um, and I could see it in London, you know. Yes. In, in the Inner East, where the working class people had left and leaving warehouses and all that kind of stuff. You can see it all over the world, this kind of thing going on. But it was too reductionist to say it was creative. And the last thing is it led loads of councils and stuff all over the world to try and set up self-conscious, creative kind of cultural zones and stuff. You can blame, you can blame Richard. Uh... And you, you might also say uh, uh, any kind of a singular idea about urbanization. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. 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 But but this, the point you just made, I think, is very important. And I, I can, in a mild way, criticize it. You know what? The creative class rarely is a large percentage of any urban population. And by the way, his subsequent, his more recent books. Agreed. Yeah. Agree. And, and they kind of, you know, backtrack a little bit on his certainty uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Absolutely. I think it's important, though, that not to be too harsh on this, because it was a brilliant kind of, a sort of debate setter offer. You know, it was kind of a very important discussion. It's just there wasn't enough, I think, critique of it. And probably because we didn't really understand quite what was going on ourselves. You know, the... the uh, so to be fair, I think, you know, it's um, what is it that uh, we live our lives forward and understand it backwards. And I think, you know, he jumped in to say that this is what is happening. So, 
it's it's not unlike where we began. You're a little bit like Jane Jacobs. I mean, okay, you know, she had a great idea, but but if you universalize it, it doesn't get you very far. Similarly, if you think the creative class, as most you know, chambers of commerce begin to think, uh, uh, was the answer, you probably didn't quite get it right uh, in terms of uh, prospering your city entirely. Yeah. Now, now, as we go forward, and we're all much more mindful of environment and climate and stuff, the thing that's interesting about the American urbanist discussion and yin and yang is actually quite a lot has been about nature, quite a lot has been about the, the green environment. You know, I'm, maybe you could say, no, I don't think it was greenwashing. I, I do think that there was quite a feel that the civilized city needed to have open space and all this kind yeah. of stuff. That's, that's the other chapter, which I yeah. haven't mentioned yet, but which is the kind of the returning, the, the park built, the amazing park building that took place in the second half of the 19th century. And that was very much of a kind of... Uh, in order to civilize the city, we have to actually not have the creative class or whatever was thought about that in the 19th century, but we have to re we have to return nature into the heart of the city. Uh, and and, and I, I still think one of the major contributions to uh, sort of international urbanization mm -hmm. was actually the building substantial amounts of open space carved into the city. Uh, you know, not taking advantage of, you know, sort of older royal grounds that became open to the public and so forth, but actually constructing from scratch yeah. thousands of acres of open space uh, as a way to civilize us by returning us to the kind of the healing aspects of nature, not out there, but also in the city. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you know, I don't know, I don't know if I look civilized to you, but but essentially I, I was brought up in a garden village version of public housing. Right where we had uh, a quarter acre blocks and big gardens and big hedges and in the middle of there's a mining village, an urban culture in the middle of the countryside, right? But I know from reading about it that they were, they were out to, to civilize us. Uh, and I have to say they partially succeeded. I think is where, but I do like this idea that the, uh, I do think there's been a really po positive tradition. And even our friend Robert Moses, obviously, was quite fixated on the idea that you, you had to have lots of parks in the modern city. Well, not just parks, but recreational, you know, tennis courts and basketball courts and and all these kinds of ways to kind of remain healthy or stay healthy longer and so forth. Sure. So I, I want to go uh, last but one thing, the the, 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 the remodeling, the, the kind of destruction of the inner city, the, the regeneration, the renewal. In fact, it's funny, when I, I entered this discussion in 97, 98, when I became head of a thing in East London that was all about urban regeneration. I didn't know it was a loaded term in, in the American discussion, urban renewal is not necessarily a good thing, Tim, you know, because of what we went through in the sort of 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. The term uh, could be thought of as positive. Why would you not want to renew things, right? Uh, especially in the new world where you can sort of begin again, right? So, but uh, the the mechanisms with which it was done, the kind of the complete cold-hearted way in which so many people, especially poorer and minorities, were displaced, uh, has has simply uh, uh, made it impossible to use the term again, and uh, you know, I, for many years I offered a course, a studio course called "Renewing Urban Renewal," and you know, hey, but uh, these days you cannot you cannot say anything like that. Uh, there's it's, there's even a kind of a more negative aspect to it, even though. If I really want to kind of get a whole bunch of people emailing me about how mad I am, even though it for the American city. 
it was the beginning of the of a long reversal to where some aspects of the city began to be positive as opposed to negative because at the middle century cities were dying i mean there's no there's no they were dying. many cities were dying they were being depopulated enormously and uh you would not want to replicate the methods but to some extent the motive in urban rio was to try to welcome back the middle class it was rarely stated that way and of course it was generally called negro removal yeah right right but it actually was an attempt misguided in terms of its technique as a way to find a way to to save the diaspora to reverse the diaspora and reinvite the middle class back into the city so this yeah. is I, I think that's really important because um because one definition of urban regeneration i used to work with 20 years ago when i started around this stuff was to get more people with more money spending it locally and you know and that requires you know i once convinced a, a place in a mining town in west cornwall to accept new middle class housing uh, on the grounds that we needed some unaffordable housing back in this place because it was just a poor place and we just needed some like new money you know and new life and they accepted it right but but back to this so in britain i would argue this and again different from australia different from the us that when we did urban regeneration stuff in the, the uk we were always mindful that in not in the not in the 50s and 60s but latterly in the last 25 30 years that we had we should have in london for example 40 percent social housing would be part of any uh, so yeah well that's the problem that's the american problem yeah by the way it has to do, and I think I mentioned that somewhere. Housing ah. is a negative term. A great, in, it's, it's a great part of your. It's a great, it's a great section of the book. You you yes. say homes. People love mm -hmm. homes, but they don't like the word housing. Right. Yes. Because to some extent, to say, oh, we have to, we have to, housing is for people who cannot uh, rise to the American dream. Now it's changing a little bit, obviously, but but really, from much of the middle of the twentieth century, if not even earlier, housing meant oh, that's stuff for for those people unlike ourselves. What we need is homes, uh, and and so it's been very. And by the way, uh, to make cities again for living, you need housing. You're not going to do it with homes. <laughs> with houses, you need housing, and that's a huge problem right now. Uh, because the cost of building residential uses in the city uh, is not really available in any way to the middle class, much less the lower middle classes. We don't have a, any tradition of social housing. We we call it public housing, right? Uh, and public housing is a scar. If you live in a public housing, it's like wearing a scarlet letter. Uh, it tells us that you're poor or that you're you know unworthy somehow. That's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. And, and back to actually this notion of beginnings, maybe we can end with that. That is, again, uh, all the tenements uh, of you know, late 19th, early 20th century America could have been improved, but instead we chose to make homes somewhere else. And we haven't yet gotten the knack, at least in the United States, about the importance of housing and through social policy in other ways, make it a bit more affordable. And the way that we made it affordable for the middle class with 20th century suburbanization. Because yeah. you point out in the book, as I think yeah. Australians tend to forget about their own situation, that it, it's, it, government has enabled the, 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 the decentralization and sprawl of, of homes through various subsidies and through various regulations. And it's a myth 
to think that there's no subsidy going to the middle classes and that the affordable housing is, is only goes to the working classes. We've, we've, as I said, we've, we've actually contributed dramatically to the capacity of people to buy a home. So why can't we just fiddle around with the subsidies and do and do it in, in a new era? Exactly. Well? What are the what might be the equivalent subsidies today yeah. uh, in terms of a, a kind of a re Re, rejoining more of us into cities in some kind of equitable way, not just for the fan, uh, wealthy creative class. Yeah. So look, I think we will end. Look, oh, it has been a fantastic and really enjoyable conversation. I hope you agree. And I, I, uh, I could do it again. You know, <laughs> just it's just the book. The book is really a tremendous resource. It's really beautifully written. It's nice to look at. Great photographs. I think it's a. It is a kind of life's work, but it's a. It's an intellectual life well led, if I might say. So thank you very much for that. I, I, I think also it's a good guide to the next phase, you see, because it, it reminds us of the importance of ideas and, and visions. It reminds us to learn from the past, and you're very judicious, I think, about what is good and what is bad. Uh, you don't sneer at, at anything, which I think is really important. And I think the to understand why people have chosen certain things. We may have helped them along the way through subsidies and all this kind of stuff, but there are certain values that they treasure from the urban form that we have, whether it's suburban or urban. And the successful next phase is not about turning our back on these lessons. It's, it's, it's about embracing, so because we will not convince people about the next urban form unless we really understand what motivates them and attracts them and, and drives them and finds way to replicate that in the, in the, next, in the next city, I think. And I, I, I really I, think that's important. Now you've written a, a better last chapter than I did, actually. So uh, maybe in the next edition. Well, so thank you. I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thank you for complimenting the book. Uh, and uh, please say hello to all of my friends uh, throughout Australia. One of these days I might kind of try to make it and, and uh, pay a visit to all of them, right? Because you're of the Harvard design, planning, urban design urban planning and urban design the influence thereof your teaching role that you, you have acolytes uh, all over the world and they some of them have already contacted me saying how excited they are about having this conversation so i think we've done uh, we've done it reasonably well and i i'm sure that people will tell us so so alex for your tremendous conversation thank you very much Thank you. I'd be happy to hear from all my friends in Australia too. So nice, nice, nice to meet you. And yes, let's do it again some other time. Be good. Okay. Thanks, Alex. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.